I'm Michelle and I'm back for season two of Get Mouthy from the Head and Neck Cancer Foundation. Talking about cancer is important, but it doesn't have to be dull or depressing. So join me as I chat with some of the most interesting people I know who are all linked to the fight against head and neck cancers, either personally or professionally. So today I'm talking to Tony Collier and Tony is joined us and it's going to be a good conversation I think today. Tony's um, actually has terminal uh, prostate cancer and he's kindly agreed to come on and just join us and discuss what it's like living with this diagnosis um, and I'm hoping that this is going to be really helpful for our listeners out there uh, either sort of um, patients themselves or people who you know friends and and loved ones of of those people so it's it's great to have you on tony and it's lovely to see you looking so well um so just i guess to start with really can you sort of give us a quick overview of your cancer journey you know like how did you first notice something was wrong yeah um i was diagnosed in may 2017 i was training for one of the world's toughest ultra marathons so I was your archetypal ultra fit 60 year old. Um, in the February, I started with a groin strain and the groin strain got worse. I ran two marathons a week apart in the April as training for the ultra marathon. Wow. And when I got back from those, the groin strain was unbearable. So I made an appointment to see a sports injuries doctor and we pre-arranged an MRI scan. And he saw the scan and didn't see what he was expecting to see. And um, he phoned me up. He said, I need you to go and have a blood test now and chest x-ray. And I'm thinking, well, you don't need those for a groin strain. Yeah. And then um, he said, and then tomorrow I'll put you in for a full body CT scan. So you can imagine that evening, it was Monday, the 8th of May, 2017. It was terrifying. We didn't have a clue what was going on. And cancer definitely wasn't on our minds. Really? Um, but I got a phone call eight o'clock on the Tuesday after the CT scan. And the conversation went something like, I'm um, sorry to tell you this, but I'm 99% certain you've got prostate cancer. Um, oh and then I had 10 days of further tests and it was confirmed it was incurable prostate cancer. Oh. It had spread throughout my skeleton from pelvis to skull. Um, and the groin strain was effectively stress fractures of the pelvis. Um, I'd had no symptoms whatsoever until the groin strain started in the February. And I reckon I'd had it for 10 years. And oh developing inside me and um, yeah you know unfortunately prostate cancer is usually symptomless yeah. uh, until it's too late and um, I didn't know I'd had a right to a blood test I might have caught it early so I've been furious ever since about that and then one of my big passions is about raising awareness so that men don't yeah, end up yeah. like me but yeah you know um, it, it was a very difficult time as you can imagine yeah and so what was it like for your family the hardest thing I've ever done was um, I was 15 minutes away from home when I took the telephone call from the sports injuries doctor. I had to drive home in floods of tears and tell my wife. And that was really tough. And my first reaction was to push her away and say, go and find somebody else because I can't oh, look goodness. after you anymore. And of course, that was entirely the wrong thing to do. And uh, I got a good beating for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, she, wasn't, uh, she wasn't very happy that I pushed yeah. her away. So that was difficult. I've got adult children and we had to get them around to tell them and you know we, they knew there was something wrong because it was yeah. like would you would you mind just coming around this evening sort of yeah. thing and, yeah and that conversation was the hardest conversation I've ever had and you know just yeah. ended up in lots of tears and family hugs and yeah and it's been a been a very difficult journey ever since but yeah. still here still here so so when so how how long ago was it they said that you were terminal and how long did they say they said you were two years 
Yeah, so uh, literally it was about 10 days after I saw the sports injuries doctor, we saw a urologist and his, his first words were, I'm sorry, but this is incurable. We'll do our best to keep you alive as long as possible. Um, there's no cure. Um, and your worst case prognosis is two years. Um, wow. And so unfortunately, I spent the first 18 months living as if I was dying. Yeah. Um, and that was completely wrong. And I realised I got that wrong, so, so badly wrong. I'd yeah. lost the joy of living through the fear of dying. Yeah. Um, yes, really, yeah. It took me 18 months to realise I had a bit of a breakdown and my sister was admitted to a hospice for end-of-life care for breast cancer at the age of 54. Oh and it was a bit of a breakdown. And after that, I've basically got my act together and I now live every day to get joy out of every day. Yeah. And love you know love my family and I've got four grandchildren now and yeah. I try to get joy out of every minute of every day and when my brain takes me to the dark place which it does from time to time yeah. I've now developed um ways of bringing me back to the light away from the dark yeah. uh, that's something that's really important for people living with an incurable um cancer diagnosis yeah and so what treatments have you had? What did, did you actually go through like a whole load of treatments or did they say because it, it's terminal that we're not going to do stuff? Oh, no, it's I mean, it's treatable, but not curable. So the treatment yeah. is basically for advanced stage prostate cancer is to remove male hormone. So basically it's uh, um, it's called androgen deprivation therapy, but most people call it hormone therapy. Yeah. Um, and that basically takes away all your manhood um, because you effectively become a menopausal woman and I'm much yeah. more sympathetic with menopausal women than I was before. Oh good, could deal with more of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so yeah, you lose your sexuality, your masculinity, mm. uh, you're effectively emasculated as a man, I was emasculated as an athlete mm. um, and I also then was due to start on chemotherapy um, but I actually managed to get a different drug which is still isn't available as a first-line treatment in the UK um, because I had private medical insurance and so yeah, yeah. immediately I started seeing healthcare inequalities that were just yeah. wrong on every level and mm. um, this drug has basically been an absolute godsend to me mm. um, it's basically kept my cancer completely stable now for six years um, I'm now looking forward to probably getting you know a good few years ahead yet and yeah. you know when you get given that prognosis of two years you you really don't think very far ahead you know now yeah. I'm thinking much further ahead yeah, you're probably just sort of counting down to those two years, aren't you? You know. You end up, yeah, you end up living as if you're going to die in two years' time. It's yeah. ridiculous, but that's yeah. what that's what your brain does, you know. And it's, yeah. it's ridiculous, but it, it does seem great. And it's interesting that you're saying about, you know, not having this uh, this uh, medication, this treatment available, because that's one of the things that we at the Head and Neck uh, Cancer Foundation are really, we're really pushing for people to be able to make a choice about what treatment that they have and to have knowledge of everything that's out there because you sort of assume that your doctor is going to recommend the best treatment for you and you're going to get the best treatment not knowing that there may be other treatments out there that you have access to um, or you don't have access to but there are choices that you can have so we sort of massively advocate finding out what's out there and googling stuff and looking at it all and finding out what there is and what might be the best treatment for you i think patients so, have, patients have to be their own advocates yes you know, i, I actually do. found out about this drug and mentioned it to my oncologist and he said well i might be able to persuade your private medical insurance to fund it for you and yeah. they did yeah. but you know i had to find that out myself 
Yeah. And I think I, that's entirely wrong. And the other thing is the drug is available in Scotland, but not in England and Wales. And that's just madness. I'm sorry, yeah. it's madness. Yeah. And But I, I see so many healthcare inequalities now, yeah. both in ethnic minorities, um, drug access, access to supportive care, alternative therapies, mm. you know, um, I just, it really annoys me that we have to, you know, cancer patients are poorly people and we have to fight our corner all the time and we shouldn't have to. I agree. I agree. And that's the thing is that you're you're in the process of going through sort of grieving over this information and then you're still having to do all the homework for yourself. And I always think this with um, uh, uh, my mum, my mum passed away in January um, and she had dementia towards the end and it was really difficult for us and my dad to sort of cope with as a family but because we're a really tight close family and we had we had access to information and we were you know had the time and that to sort of look through stuff we were able to make mum's passing as as best as it possibly could be but you're kind of thinking what if you're alone you know what if it's just what if it had just been my mum and my dad together my dad's 86 how would he have dealt with that on his own if he didn't have other people around him and you do just assume that you're going to get this and this is all going to sort of fall open to you once you get this diagnosis. And um, it's interesting, you, you, you know, you saying that. So this estimate that you had of two years and you saying that this took you to the, the brink, you know, this this really sort of took you down into sort of a terrible depression. How how did you get out of that what did you do I mean I guess there's part of you I mean I've had depression in the past and I kind of know I had to literally hit rock bottom before I was able to pick myself up so is that a similar thing that happened to you yeah I wouldn't say actually it was depression it was more anxiety um, uh, and I think I just I just I'd started living as if I was going to die in two years time um, and eventually you know culmination of factors my head not been in the right place not trying to get joy out of every day my sister going into hospice I was having some business problems as well um, and all these things came at me at the same time and I realized that I needed to get help I realized that actually asking for help is a sign of strength and not a sign yeah. of weakness yeah. and so I sought some counseling from a cancer support charity and I had some counselling. I sat and cried with a caseworker for two and a half hours. I felt mm. so much better afterwards. Had a few sessions with a psychologist and it made me realise that I could do things like, you know, if I was feeling a little bit anxious, I could start doing deep breathing. But actually, most importantly, I think the thing when your brain starts going to the dark place is to bring yourself back and think mm. about something in your life that gives you joy. Yeah. And in my case, when I was diagnosed, I had one grandson absolutely dote on him. He dotes on me. We have a wonderful relationship. And all I could think about was when in that first 18 months was I'm not going to get to see him become a teenager. Yeah. I wasn't actually living life with him. So I pulled myself back from the brink by thinking about everything in life that gives me happiness. Mm. And I think that's a really important way of dealing with it. You know, so when I start feeling a bit anxious, um, I've got blood tests coming up, which always leads to anxiety. Yeah. Um, but when I start feeling as if I'm going a little bit deep towards the dark place, I can pull myself back by thinking about something that makes me happy, yeah. doing something that makes me happy, going for a run, yeah. uh, reading a book, listening to music, something positive, getting outside, listening to the bird song, um, just soaking up the atmosphere, go for a walk in the countryside. But anything that gets you away from that sinking feeling is really important. Yeah. And that's sort of, do you, is it, is it, is this sort of, 
a really nice byproduct of actually what is quite a horrible thing is this sort of like do you think this would have happened this joie de vivre that you've got now would that have not happened had you not had this diagnosis it's it's bizarre there are so many good things that have come from the diagnosis i wish i'd never had it but i'd I'd still be working 70 hours a week I'd, i'd i'd miss seeing my grandchildren grow up i'd miss spending time with them you know, the first thing I did when I was diagnosed, I went down to three and a half days a week so I could pick my grandson up from school three days a week and build memories with him. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I, I actually also think I'm a better man. And I think yeah. I'm, I'm a better man now because I realise that actually I can do something good from my bad. And yeah. my, my doing something good is I'm an awareness raiser, I'm an advocate, patient advocate. I've done so much work in the cancer community in the last six years that I think have made things better for other people and I think Fantastic. it's made me a better man. But actually, even more importantly, from my viewpoint, you know, when you get that cancer diagnosis, you lose self-esteem, mm. you lose a bit of body image. And from my viewpoint, just basically being able to help other people by helping them get diagnosed earlier, therefore cured, helping things be better for the future generations of men to follow has made me feel better about myself. It's given me about my self-esteem and it's given me a reason to live. Mm. And so, you know, I live for my grandchildren, I live for my family, but I actually love to live to make things better for the future generations. And I think that's really important for me. It is so important. And it's really, it's because it, it, I've, I've got a grandson and he is my absolute world and uh, I spend a lot of time with him. And it's funny how just even that changes, doesn't it? It's like, you, I am, um, you know, I said, said to my sister the other day, my nan lived till she was 98. And I was like, oh, I'm like aiming for 98. You know, I'm definitely going to do that. And she was like, really, do you want to? And I was like, I can't bear the thought of not being around for my grandson. It's really kind of about that, like about seeing him and being there and being present in his life, you know, as well as my own children. Um, yeah, so I, that I, was actually a massive part of it right at the start. You know, I, 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 all, all I could think about was I'm not going to see him grow up. I'm not going to be there when he starts school. I'm not going to be there when he goes to secondary school. And, and all these things go through your mind. And, you know, and I, what I was doing was actually catastrophizing rather than saying, actually, let's live every day with him at the moment. Do Spend as much time with him as possible and do things with him that you wouldn't otherwise do. And so I've actually been able to spend way more time with my grandchildren than I would have done if I carried on working. So it's been just in some respect yeah, yeah. a blessing. Yeah. So you mentioned about your sports. So obviously you were like this mega fit individual doing all this stuff. So I've got two sort of things really. One is I, I used to work actually in sport. I worked in sport for many years. And I know that athletes really... Um, are aware of their bodies sort of thing you know they're aware of every little stress and strain or whatever so you said that you didn't have any symptoms so this stuff was this was in your in your bones and you didn't have any of that do you think it was your fitness do you think it was your fitness level of fitness that maybe meant you didn't notice that if you know what I mean I think the level of fitness has helped me ever since. Yeah, I think it's helped me to cope better. And I've also, you know, I carry on running and I run three or four times a week. And last year I ran at least five K every day for 365 days. Um, So I'm still doing, you know, madcap crazy things. But I don't think I think actually what I do think is that the running led to my diagnosis being a lot earlier because I wouldn't have had the groin strain, which was stress fractures of the pelvis if I weren't a runner. So yeah. it would have spread even further, probably into organs. And then my life expectancy would have been a lot shorter. shorter. I do think exercise is vital for cancer patients. Yeah. Mm. Um, I am absolutely passionate about the value of exercise. I'm a 
patient representative in Greater Manchester for Prehab for Cancer. Um, I'm a, one of the a core team for 5K Your Way, which is uh, linked to Park Run, which is the final Saturday of every month. We come together at 85 Park Runs across the country for cancer people living with and beyond cancer to come together and exercise and do the 5k their way and then we go for a coffee and chat and become a support group yeah and so i've done a lot of work in the field of exercise for cancer yeah. patients and i think it's now a given that you know exercise is very beneficial it can slow tumor progression um and recurrence and so i think you know that for me has been something again that i'm also very passionate about but i don't think that the running masked my symptoms unfortunately mm-hmm. prostate cancer is in in for many men most men with early stage prostate cancer have no symptoms at all mm. and quite often the first time that the symptoms show themselves is when it's too late like it was with me mm. and so when you your love for running when you got your diagnosis did you stop did you kind of think oh did you i could i i think i might have just sort of thought the world's just stopped and stopped still did you stop running my first question to my oncologist wasn't how long I've got to live, it was will I still be able to run? <laughs> uh, and so yes, I had to take three months off while the stress fractures of the pelvis healed. Yeah. And then I got back to running. My oncologist said to me, you can carry on running, you must carry on running, um, but it will be much tougher because you'll have no muscle mass because of having no testosterone yeah. and you'll gain weight because that's what happens when you're on hormone therapy. And he was right, it's become much, much harder. And I think that was also part of my malaise in the first two years. Yeah. I'd got slower. I'd gone from being a sub elite athlete to a back of the pack plodder and I couldn't cope with it, yeah. you know. I'd all I'd always run every time I go out for a run, it was like, let's do it faster, let's do it longer, let's do it yeah, quicker. And then suddenly it was like, okay, I'm going right to the back of the pack and I'm really gonna struggle here. But for me it was so vitally important. It's it was I started running when I was 45, did my first marathon when I was 50 and did 20 marathons in total and two wow. ultra marathons. Um, and so it was such a massive part of my life and I couldn't do without it. So yes, carrying on running was really important. And I knew that I was basically at some point I'm going to have to stop running. So I've also qualified as a coach. And last year, I, last year I coached 60 people from couch to 5K. So wow. yeah, what a legacy. Fantastic. And I, lo- I love the coach and I love what, you know, we had a group of 36 and a group of 24 and watching them develop as runners and develop their relationships with each other yeah. was so satisfying. And yeah. so, yeah, it's something I'm, I'm very, and we're going to do another course in January. So, uh, yeah, I'm very passionate about it. So I, I was reading that um, after that you read a quote um, after a period of this sort of period of struggle so and which changed your outlook a bit what what i'm dying to know what was that quote it was the founder of the maggie's uh, cancer support centers who said you shouldn't lose the joy of living through the fear of dying um and i think for me that was really important um and i think you know i, I met the one of the um cancer support people at the maggie centers and she said you know just think of it differently think of it as you are living with cancer not dying of cancer and and that turned me around um, after yeah. some counselling, and I think that's really important. Yeah, don't don't lose the joy of living through the fear of dying. Yeah, I think that's that's an that's kind of easier said than done, though. But I think it's a, it, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, you know, and I and I, I I do struggle. You know, I, I do still have bad days. Mm. Um, I I get because of the, the hormone treatment, I get massive massive fatigue, and I really struggle with the fatigue. And mm-hmm. on those days, I can just sink a little bit and I know I'm sinking and I feel it. And it's yeah. like, you've got to pull yourself back. You've got to do something positive. You've got to get some joy. 
And so, yeah, looking at something joyful and getting out into the fresh air, I think is really important. So I'm thinking that there will be people listening to this, Tony, who may just have been diagnosed, may just have had the same um, conversation that you had 15 minutes away from home. Um, if they've just found out or they're struggling, what sort of advice would you give to them? Well, I think the first thing is, is to try to stay as positive as possible. And I know that's not easy. Recognise that there is help out there. Um, the Maggie mm. centres are amazing places. Um, Neil Cliff Centre near, <clears throat> near to me, which supports men. Um, Recognising that asking for help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Mm. And all those things are really important. But I do think, um, for me, starting on a treatment pathway helped me enormously. I, I felt awful. I mean, really, really awful when I was first diagnosed. Um, absolutely horrendous. It's the worst experience imaginable. But once I started on a treatment pathway, I felt much, mm. much better. And you know, for some people, it might be you know, six weeks, two months, three months before treatment starts after your diagnosis in certain cancers. Um, particularly with prostate cancer, you might have to wait three months for a prostatectomy. Um, so I think, you know, starting on that treatment pathway made me feel much better. And I started thinking that actually this is helping me. This is going to keep me alive. This is going to let me do things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So I, I think, you know, getting on that treatment pathway starting the process I think is a big help and it gave me a bit of a boost mm. um, and I think just try to get joy out of life really you know if, if you if you get sucked into thinking that you're going to die that's basically where you're going to end up you know you could for me there were two ways of moving forward one was taking control of my cancer which I ultimately did and the mm. other was curl up on a sofa I don't think curling up on a sofa is an option it wasn't an option for me and it shouldn't be an option for anybody no. Just try to get the most out of every day of life, even if your life expectancy is a bit shorter than you um, mm. would have hoped for. So, um, lastly, I suppose, really, head and neck um, cancers are much like prostate cancers in that self-checking or, or doing things to sort of, you know, to see that you might be vulnerable to this plays a huge part in diagnosis. So, what would you be your advice? And I... I hate to say this but we've said it before but men are particularly bad about yep. um you know even with us with head and neck cancers men get diagnosed later later stages um mm. just because they've put up with mouth ulcers or strange feelings in their in mm. their mouth for a while so what i know you, i sort of know what your answer is going to be but what would your advice be to somebody who um I guess any any men out there really who who because who, it's anyone and everyone isn't it really what would your advice be yeah I think for men are at risk of prostate cancer and there are certain risk groups you know men over 45 with a family history black men over 45 both those groups are at much higher risk and men over 50 are at higher risk mm. if you're in those risk groups you must 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 go and get a PSA blood test done by your GP it's not a, it's only an indicator tool. It's not a diagnostic test and GPs are still pushing back against giving them. But it's the only way we can start the process. And for a cancer that is usually symptomless, the only way to start the process at the moment is the PSA blood test. And what uh, is the PSA? What does that stand for? PSA? Stands for prostate specific antigen. Okay. And prostate kicks this antigen out into your bloodstream. And if there's something wrong with your prostate, it will kick more of the antigen into your bloodstream. Now, something wrong might be an infection. 
it, it, it probably isn't cancer. And for 75% of men with a raised PSA level don't have cancer. So, it, but it's the only way we can start the process. And um, we don't screen for prostate cancer in the UK. Mm. And so it's basically a self-help thing. We've got to get people to go to their GPs and ask for a PSA blood test because that's the only way we can start the process. And men over Can you 50, insist on that? Yeah, men can over 50 insist? have a right to a PSA test. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really difficult because GPs still are stuck in the past. Yeah. Um, in the old days, PSA test, if it was high, it led to over-treatment, over-diagnosis, which was difficult for lots of men. But we've now removed that sort of causing of harm from a high reading and more and more men are doing things like active surveillance, um, not having active treatment. Um, for, for cancers that are pussycats rather than tigers, we don't yeah. need to do things, you know. So it's just what we now need, of course, is a, is a test that can tell us categorically whether it is cancer and whether it's a tiger or a pussycat yeah um but that's we're, we're away away from that at the moment in the meantime we don't screen and because we don't screen men have got to self-help which yeah. means they've got to ask their gp for a blood test and if the gp says no tell them you've got a right and the gp should counsel you on the pros and cons yeah. but i'm the, but i'm the worst con because i'm living this life of having a shorter life expectancy and living with some horrendous side effects i don't mm. want men to end up like me no. And it's interesting, though, isn't it, that you're saying that the, this screening isn't currently provided because as women, we have um, breast uh, breast scans, you know, um, and uh, cervical scans as well. So it's interesting that that's happening, but this isn't happening just by sort of due course. Yeah, you can. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes a bit cynical and wonder whether old men matter because it's. I think it's always yeah. been regarded as an old man's disease. It's not an old man's disease right. either. We've lost men in the 40s to prostate cancer. So, you know, people shouldn't be complacent thinking it's just an old man's disease. I was 60 years old and absolutely ultra fit. You know, I was literally yeah. running 70, 80 miles a week. And mm. I got fitter than me. And I'd run in that period of the cancer developing, I'd run 19 marathons and a 90 kilometer ultra marathon. So yeah. you wouldn't have got any fitter than me. Um, but it didn't stop me from ending up with okay, prostate yeah. cancer. And I think, you know, mm. I was furious if I'd known I'd had a right to a PSA blood test from 50 and had it every year from 50 to 60, I'd have been diagnosed early and cured. Yeah, wow. Well, it's been, actually, it's just been fantastic talking to you. And you're so, I know no one else can see your lovely smiley face that I can see, but you radiate positivity, I have to say. Um, it's, it's great to speak to you. And I wish you all the luck in the world you and your lovely family you. and um keep keep up keep up with your running <laughs> yeah absolutely and, yeah and maybe we'll speak to you again in the future we look forward to it thanks for asking me to have a chat i hope you enjoyed that please share this to help raise awareness and if you'd like any further information about head and neck cancers do visit our website hncf.org.uk